My name is Paul Wilkin. I'm an elder here at the Livingstones Church. I've uh, been going here since 2000. Um, I am also not the normal speaker up here, so I'd ask you to bear with me as we do this. This is the first time I've actually spoken on a particular section of the Bible. And so, with the Malloys being out on sabbatical, a few of us elders are taking a turn up here, and where Chuck may say he's the C team, I don't know what that makes me, so uh, I don't want to give myself a D already. Um, so I did speak back in February, early March, and, and as you know, I really love to listen and think critically about some podcasts and things, and I use those to reference and to help build kind of this section of First John that I'll be doing today. Today I'm covering First John uh, chapter 4, verses 7 through 12, and I encourage you, if you do have your LSC app or even if you have uh, your Bible, do you have a Bible? Um, or Bible app, just follow along. We'll be in First John uh, chapter 4, and again, starting at verse 7. So um, some of those, those uh, podcasts that I listen to are like Bible Project, Faith Improvised, that's a new one I listen to, uh, Baymont Discipleship, The Holy Post, um, and one you probably not heard me talk about before is Faith Improvised, and it's, it's hosted by Dr. Tim Gombas, who is a uh, biblical teacher. He, he studies the Bible, that's what he does for a living, and he teaches how to read it to people. And it was interesting because as I was listening to this, he did a three-part series that just ended this last week about how to read biblical uh, letters. And that's exactly what we're looking at here. First John is a letter. It doesn't say specifically who it's from, but we're assuming it's John just because of the context and the way things look. Um, even second and third John don't say who it's from. It just says from the elder. Um, so anyways, but it's interesting, uh, Dr. Gombas, when he talks about reading letters, some questions you want to ask. Who wrote it? Who is it written to? And why is it written? Those are the things that we have to ask. And what I would say is Pat did a fantastic job of explaining a lot of these sorts of questions and answers back when we started this um, back at the first part of June. So just look if you have your... LSC app, you can click on the podcast and go back and look at where this series began, and you can hear him talk about who the uh, intended audience was, why it was being written, all of those things. So I would encourage you to go back. It's only like the first 10 or 15 minutes to get that context. So, um, but I would say if you're very interested in learning more about New Testament letters and how those are put together, like there's a lot of letters that are at the end of the New Testament. Um, Dr. Gombas and Faith Improvised does a great job of explaining that. So if you're interested in that, I would just say, look up Faith Improvised in your podcast and go back and listen to the last three episodes. So I also want to ask who, and I'm going to ask you to raise your hands. I'm going to call you out on this. Who has looked at the Bible Project's First John video. Anybody? Okay. I see the Kozak. Ooh. When I talked back in February, I tried to stress as much as I could that, that the Bible Project is this amazing resource. And I would, I would tell you, 
whenever we do a book on the Bible, go spend 10 minutes. It's 10 minutes. Go watch this video. This actually covers, this one covers 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And so it gives you an overview of all of those books and what to expect. And, and what that will do is, one, when your pastor is up here speaking about it, it would create questions and conversations with your pastor, and nothing makes your pastor feel better than when he has questions that come to him and that people are engaged in what he's talking about. So try to do that next time when we do this. I would say go out and listen to that um, and, and, and just get into the Bible project. It's great. So, all right. So this is another thing about doing this section of Scripture is First John, there's a lot of talk about love. And Chuck mentioned this in one of his sermons uh, earlier. It's love, love, love. And this is like the highlight of all the love sections. And so it's very hard to be up here and try to speak about some things and try not to cover a lot of the same topics that both Lowell, Chuck, and Pat have already covered in this. But, but this is no exception. There's a lot of love talk in this section. And, and um, it, it actually, I counted it up. It was 28 times. In this little section of about 15 scriptures, 28 times love is mentioned. So just know that it's very, very important. And Chuck also mentioned that the Greek form of this word love that is interpreted for us is agape. And agape, um, if, we can, if we can throw that up on the screen, if you do a Google search and says, what does agape mean from the New Testament? It says agape is Greek in the New Testament, the fatherly love of God for humans as well as humans' reciprocal love for God. In the scripture, the transcendent agape love is the highest form of love in contrast with eros or erotic love and phila, brotherly love, like Philadelphia. Um, so, so when you look at that, that's a lot of words. Chuck said it very simply, and I like it this way. Agape is a force that's manifested in action. So it's not sitting there and just talking about love. It's it's a form of love that compels us to take action and to do something. So let's use Chuck's definition. I like it better. Um, so let's get into this section of 1 John chapter 4, starting at verse 7 and ending at 21. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that he might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loves us, loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one, has ev no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. 
If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely the love of God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love, love lives in God. Let me say that again. Whoever lives in love, loves in God, and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment in this world. We are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loves us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates his brothers or sisters is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. That's a lot of times I just said love. I don't know if you noticed that. Um, So let's go back. Let's take a look at verse 7 and 8. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not, who does not love does not know God because God is love. Okay, so we have to remember the context of this letter. There's a lot of things. Number one, it's hard to even just read this section out loud to people. But two, you have to remember the context. And so like I said, if you remember from Pat's sermon uh, back in the first week, we talked about the Gnostic teachings that, that John's writing against. And this is more like a proto-Gnostic teaching. This is like pre-Gnosticism that really picks up more later in the first and second uh, centuries. But, but this is like the starts of it. And in these Gnostics, they, they believe in Christ, but, but they also believe that maybe he didn't come fully in the flesh, like it was, it was something where he was here in a spiritual form that just appeared to be fleshly, and what John is trying to tell them is that's not the case, and also Gnostics believe that, that uh, the spirit is what matters, physical body, uh, physical needs, those kind of things don't matter to the Gnostics, and so this is specifically what John is writing to them right here. So, so as, we, as we think of this, just remember, physical bodies don't matter to the Gnostics. Only their enlightened spirit is needed. So we do not have to agape one another. That means they don't, they don't take personal actions. They don't try to do things for people's physical needs because that's flesh. It's not spirit. It doesn't matter. But what does matter is is that these folks are neglecting and they're continuing to say that they're of God. But they don't care about the homeless, feeding the hungry, or bringing fellowship to the lonely. They only find their fulfillment through this enlightenment, this spiritualness that they have 
and that they don't think others have, and, and that's really what they care about. They don't necessarily care about those physical needs. So let's go on to verse 9. This is how, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Now, that sounds a lot like John 3.16, doesn't it? And this is actually one of those things where when you read it, you go, oh, this is very similar to something we read in the Gospels, and it helps them determine that this letter is from John. So, I'll continue into verse 10. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us, and he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So, God sent his son not because we loved God. It's because God loves us. So we have to get that into our heads right now. It wasn't because of something we did or how we agaped God. It's because God agaped us and he took action in sending his son from heaven and giving him physical bodily form down here with us. So starting back with Adam and Eve, Abraham, Moses and David and the prophets, God has this covenant partnership with them because he loved them, not because they loved him. That is why we need to love one another. Even if, 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 um, if God, even if we don't love God, we need to love one another. Most gods during that time, they were there and they were telling their people, I need you to do my bidding to appease my wrath. That's not what our God is about. Our God is about bringing us closer to him so that we can flourish as a human entity and be in partnership with each other and with God, unlike those gods of days past that said, you must do these things or I will prevent you from flourishing. So that means we should want to steward all the things that God has given us. That includes not just our planet and, and all the things in it, but also the other image bearers of God, which is all of us and all the rest of the world. It's so very hard to do, though. Do you want to agape the guy that just cuts you off as you were driving to church this morning? Do you want to agape the person that you're working next to who makes everything so much more difficult? Do you want to agape the person that votes differently than you? Even people who have different beliefs, we should agape because they bear the image of God. We don't love them because they love us. We love them because God loves them. Let's go to verse 11. Dear friends, since God so loves us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. I'm going to read this a few more times today, but I want you to hear this. God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. <clears throat> this reminds me of an interview I just heard on the Holy Post podcast. It was with Dr. Carmen Imes. She wrote this book called Bearing God's Name, Why, we still, Why Sinai Still Matters. I just downloaded it. 
I will admit to you, I've not listened to the whole thing. So I'm just going to talk a little bit about the interview that she had describing this book. And in the book, she says that uh, when God made this covenant partnership with the people of Israel at Mount Sinai, that's when Moses was given this gift, this gift that signified the covenant, his love, and this reciprocal partnership that they have together. We call that gift the Ten Commandments. By the way, that's an awful translation, and it's something you should study, but I'm not going to go into it right now. One of these commandments is, it comes from Exodus 20, verse 7. It says, you shall not misuse the name of your Lord, the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Now, I don't know about you, but I've always been taught and thought this means I can't say God's name unless I'm speaking specifically about God in a situation. So don't use the Lord's name in vain or in some flippant way. But this means much, much more than that. This means you are bearing God's name in this world. This means when you speak of God and when others speak of God, you are God's representative. So don't, while you're bearing his name, don't misrepresent his name. The Israelites are now in this covenant, and they're his representatives on the earth. And call, God has called them to be a kingdom of priests. Exodus 19, 5 and 6, it says, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possessions. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are, <clears throat> these are the words you speak to the Israelites. That's just him telling Moses, go tell the people, I'm expecting you to be kingdom of priests if we're in this covenant relationship. And he want, God wants them to take this very seriously. He doesn't want them to do what? Misrepresent him or use his name in a way that isn't in accordance for what he wants. So the Israelites should agape the people that are in need among them. <clears throat> if they're hungry, if they're outcast, if they're marginalized, they should be moved into action. Not doing so would make God look bad as part of this partnership that they're in. That is what it actually means to use God's name in vain. It is to misrepresent him as one of his followers. And so how do we tie this back into, so a lot of this was, Covenant relationships between God and the Israelites, right, that I've just been talking about. Well, we're called to do pretty much the same thing if we look at 2 Corinthians 5, 20 through 21. It says, we therefore are, uh, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making an appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So we are these ambassadors. We say we believe in Christ. That means we are 
Christ's ambassadors here on earth. It, it, it says right at the end there, so that we may be, become righteous, the righteous of God. So again, we're being called to something much more than, than using God's name flippantly. Or, or it's this representation that's important. So we are called, the Israelites were called to be bearers of God's name, to be a kingdom of priests, and all of Christ's followers are called to be ambassadors. It's the same thing. We are being called to represent and be bearers of God's name here on the earth. And that is very scary and very powerful. Let's go on to verse 13 through 16. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us the spirit, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on, on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. So God's Holy Spirit is living in us. That's proof that we're with God. And again, these proto-Gnostics, these pre-Gnostics that are out there living among them, they're either falsely teaching or leaving the faith completely. But again, they believe in the Spirit, just the Spirit. And John wants to tell that uh, these people, his contemporaries, have seen Jesus in the flesh and in this world, the Spirit in his flesh. So Jesus is flesh, his Spirit, God's Spirit is in Jesus. Jesus is not just Spirit. So his flesh and his spirit together make him fully human and fully God. So, but this is not just Jesus. Spirit and the flesh can be together in Jesus' followers. And we're the proof of that. We claim to be followers of Jesus, and God's spirit lives in us. He, it compels us to do things that we normally wouldn't want to do. It compelled me to say I would do a sermon on Sunday, and I'm scared to death. Thank you. <laughs> so, so it's one of these things where we have this proof. We've seen the spirit and the flesh together, so don't let these Gnostics tell you any different. It can be one. It doesn't have to be just Jesus in the spirit or just us in the flesh. Knowing how much God loves us means that we can trust a story, and that's what faith is all about. Let's go to verse 17. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. And so the Gnostics are really getting into these followers' heads. Like they feel like, am I doing too much? Like, do I really need to do things to try to help these other people? Do I need to be compelled into action? Or can I just do what the Gnostics are doing and just 
care about my own needs, worry about my own spiritual enlightenment. And they're scared because they don't know what this means on the day of judgment. Where am I going to be in the day of judgment? And John is trying to give him some, them some comforting words that says, basically, if you are with Jesus like he was in this world, you are going to be just fine. John is really trying to be soft and sweet to show this church that, that the, it's okay. You are good and you are in a good spot, and you don't have to worry about the day of judgment. Let's go to verse 18 and 19. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. And this is truly profound teaching. But this is what it reminds me. It reminds me of something another great master once said. How feel you? Cold, sir. Afraid, are you? No, sir. See through you? We can. Be mindful of your feelings. Your thoughts dwell on your mother. I miss her. Mm, afraid to lose her, I think. Mm? What does that got to do with anything? Oh, keep going. Keep going with the clip. Sorry. How feel you? Cold, sir. Afraid, are you? No, sir. See through you. We can. Be mindful of your feelings. Your thoughts dwell on your mother. I miss her. Mm, afraid to lose her, I think. Mm? What has that got to do with anything? Everything. Fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. Such wise words from Master Yoda, yes. But it really, when you read this, that's the first thing that popped into my head. There is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And it's scary. Fear grips us. And I think it's the biggest problem we are dealing with today is that so many people are living in fear. No one trusts one another. I'm sorry, I'm going to preach a little bit here. No one trusts one another anymore because they fear them. We fear our government wants to control us or that we don't do enough to help the marginalized. Maybe they're helping too much or not enough. We're scared that our rights are being taken from us. We're scared that other things that are going on that we're just not able to do enough. We're afraid to stop doing certain things. We're afraid, just look at gun control, abortion, racism, the economy. We hear about conspiracy theories that scare us. 
Do we believe in them? Should we not believe them? Should we be scared of the people who do believe in them? We are scared that our kids are being taught things that they shouldn't learn. We are thinking they're being exposed to things they shouldn't see. But we also don't want to shelter them, and we want them to be accepting and caring. We need to remember all of these things. Remember when you went to school and we were actually taught how to cooperate and to make uh, you give a little and the other person give a little. You just actually fix your situations by conceding something. We don't do that today. No, no, no. We cannot concede. We cannot take less. We have to be in control. Now, our biggest institutions, they can't because they're afraid that others will take their power, take their control. All of our biggest institutions are in this right now where nobody feels like they can trust them. Our Congress is split in half. Republicans sit on one side, Democrats on the other. And if you even think about talking to the other side or compromising or working together, the others in their party, they're not happy about it. I heard one congresswoman talk about the only time Republicans and Democrats sat together, non-segregated, was their freshman class when they would come in. But as soon as they left that orientation where they sat together, they went into separate areas where they were kept separate. No collaboration. Perfect love drives out all of this. Perfect love brings us together, creates unity, and lets others be able to talk about their side and the others talk about their side and they get to see how close they are on 90% of the stuff that they're working on. But we're afraid to do it because the other side can't get one up on us. This perfect love that drives this out, this is the love of God. He first loved us, and that is the perfect love that we need to share and to stop being ruled by fear. Don't forget about verse 412. God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. For us to bear God's name, to be an ambassador of Jesus, it happens through us. All right, let's go on to verse 20 and 21. Whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God who they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. So basically, in these last couple of verses, Scripture is telling us that if we love God and hate our fellow believers, that's what 
the older NIV translation says there, instead of brothers and sisters, it says believers, that we are no better than our opposer, our accuser, the liar. That's Satan. Satan is the one, I just felt like Dana Carvey being the church lady right there. (laughs) Is it Satan? Okay, come back. Um, Satan does this work to, to keep us separate, to separate us, to make us get into these little nitpicky things, even if they don't feel nitpicky and it feels like it's something that's in your core. So the opposer, the accuser, the liar is totally at work. So, but when you look at this section, the other thing that I see here is that how can you say you love somebody that you can see, you can physically touch? How can you not love them when you can see and feel them and just see them in front of you and say that you love God when you don't see him? You should see him in all of these people who bear the name of God, who are image bearers of him. That's how we should love. But one thing I do want to point out here that I found very interesting is is this is where you have to make sure that you understand the context of this letter because it can be very confusing. Uh, Verse 21 says, and he has given us this command, anyone who loves God, must love their brothers and sisters. That doesn't mean Mark 12 didn't happen, right? This is Jesus' teaching in Mark 12, 28 through 31. At verse 28, it says, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. It doesn't say your neighbor is just your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. It says your neighbors. That's everybody. We're all neighbors on this planet together. So, because the Gnostics are doing certain things in this church, John is telling them specifically, you have to love your brothers and sisters. But that's not the end of the story. And so, we don't just take that and say, oh, God's only called me to just love my brothers and sisters. No, Jesus says we are told to love our neighbors as ourself. First John 4 through 7, 7 through 21 is an amazing set of scriptures. And, and I hope we all were able to learn something today, but what I will tell you is, is the thing that sticks with me the most and that feels like the biggest call is back in verse, in chapter 4, Verse 12, God lives in us 
and his love is made complete in us. Let's remember that this week as we live our lives and remember to love our neighbors as ourselves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that you love us and that your love is compelled to, for you to take action and for you to send your son down from heaven. And we just recognize that we want to be his ambassadors. We want to be his ambassadors on the south side of South Bend. We want to be his ambassadors here in Indiana. We want to be his ambassadors in the United States and the world. Lord, we love you, and we know this is a high calling. Just ask us to remember your son and all the things that he's done for us. And we thank you for that, and we praise the holy name of Jesus, our example, the head ambassador, the guy we get all of our marching orders from, Lord, help us remember him this week as we live lives in bearing the name of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.